one of the things you're trying to promote is this hospital comfort kit. When we were in the hospital, everybody that was reaching out to us was saying, we'll do anything. What do you need? And we had no answer. Then I started to think about the gifts that we received that were really helpful. It just occurred to me that, boy, it would be great for people, especially those that aren't familiar with long hospital stays, to get a basket that was geared toward being stuck in the hospital. A little Bluetooth speaker, a water bottle. It all comes in a cooler. Sometimes you want something that's cold. It's handy to have a cooler. And then on top of that, a hospital survival guide with identification for items that we didn't include in the kit that they may want to bring from home. That'll be available in late May. Yeah, we'll be getting our uh, first round of inventory within two weeks. Welcome to the eSuccess Methods Podcast with Jacob and Aaron, your weekly dose of tips and tricks to achieve excellent performance in your business and career. Join us as we explore deeper into the practical worlds of Lean, Six Sigma, project management, and design thinking. In this episode number 200, we cap off our Speaking Upward series with TEDxer Raymond Poole and talk about his path to landing a TEDx talk. Be sure to watch Ray's TEDx talk about realistic optimism and many other valuable videos and resources at www.cfcornerman.com. If you're just tuning in for the first time, find all our back episodes on our podcast table of contents at esuccess-methods.com. If you like this episode, be sure to click the like link in the show notes. It's easy. Just tap our logo, click, and you're done. Tap, click, done. Here we go. So you've uh, gotten your polish within the uh, organization and and moved through the ranks in business. Uh, You took off your engineering hat, took off your marketing hat, and now you've put on your CF cornerman hat. What from that business experience were you able to carry forward uh, into a different venue, and and what was different? You know, I think I think for me, what I brought from engineering was, and and from marketing was, a singular focus. You know, you're you know, I, if I'm delivering a speech, like for instance, when I delivered the uh, TEDx talk, my goal was to talk about realistic optimism, to try to to try to give examples of it, to try to walk people through how I came to these conclusions, and try to get people to kind of come with us on that journey and come out the other side and say yes. Like this perspective makes a lot of sense because of all of these reasons. And when you start to do that, you have that singular focus and you, you end up trying to pull out all of this extra fluff. And there was a lot that I ended up having to pull out of that speech. But in the end, I think it makes you more focused on the point that you're trying to make. So I felt that was, that was what I brought from the engineering background. And also, you know, just the, just the fact that you have the confidence of saying, you know what, this is my experience, this is what I know, and I can explain this to somebody just from mm-hmm. the sheer number of years that you do that. Um, but I think one of the things that changed for me, and for me that was that was kind of interesting, is in a corporate setting, sometimes you feel like you've got limited time. And you're really, you know, the same way that you've got that very specific thing that you're driving to, that point that you're making, you're also talking faster, you're more excited, you're more excitable, and you're really trying to get them convinced of this one particular thing and you're trying to explain it and you don't want to sound desperate in certain ways. You don't want to sound, um, you you know, and then as you get excited, you're always worried, okay, there's going to be an opposing voice. So you're, you're fired up and you're trying to, um, you're trying to cover all your bases. So when that opposing voice comes up, you've got, the response to that opposing voice, that, that, that question that you anticipated. So it's understandable, but at the same time, when you're up on stage, you kind of recognize this is my turn to talk. 
nobody's going to cut me off. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to jump in on this conversation. Nobody's going to ask me a question I can't answer or jump in and say, no, what you just said is wrong. So as a result, it allows you to have a few pauses. You can have a conversation where you can slow it down. You could speed it up. You can highlight something and just let people think about it for a second. And in the end, you can, it can be a conversation. It can be a, you can do that in a smaller group of people. But for me, I learned that speaking to larger groups of people because you recognize that, hey, when I had the floor, people were forced to listen. And if I can pause after I say this thing, maybe they'll stop and they'll think about it for a second. And then we can go on to the next point. And I think that, you know, even even going back into the corporate setting, I would take that with me because it's powerful to be able to present something and to be able to slow people down and show them something and then just pause on it for a minute. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sometimes is the toughest thing to do when you're really trying to drive a point home. So would you say it's something that you had got onto the public stage where they really, it's not a really a question and answer forum per se. Uh, nobody's going to interrupt you. Um, would you say you 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 said you allowed yourself to? No, uh, let me see. The way you put it made it sound like um, it's okay if I slow down. But uh, I'm guessing it's it was more like no, I really need to slow down. <laughs> yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it was like. You know, the same way, you know, the same way I was that kid racing through the national anthem in front of my class, I found myself when I joined Toastmasters, I gave my first speech and I blazed through it (laughs) and it wasn't, you know, and it was the same thing. I didn't, you know, I remembered the next line and I, you know, and I was, and I was trying to get between, I think it was a four to six minute speech. So I was trying to get it under six minutes. So I didn't have time to be pausing after my jokes for people to laugh or pausing for people to understand what I'm saying. I'm saying all the words, just mm-hmm. keep up. And it was, that part was, was a fundamental shift to say, you know what? I can go six and a half minutes. I can go seven minutes. The worst case isn't that I go over time. The worst case is that I finished the speech and people didn't follow me through it. Uh huh. So I, you know, so I, you know, even, even in my TEDx talk, all of those pauses were practiced because I had the, I had practiced that speech so many times that if I didn't intentionally think in my head when I'm going through it, okay, slow it down and pause here, mm-hmm. I would have blazed right through some of those points and they wouldn't have had the same impact. So when you're doing a pause and getting to the tactics of it, are you uh, are you counting one Mississippi or are you <laughs> what are you doing? No, I'm just. I'm just pausing and I'm kind of looking at the people to see if there's a little bit of an aha or to see if they stop and they notice or they they're thinking about it at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I, you know, I, I would have probably been better if had I done one Mississippi during the TED talk <laughs> because I, 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 I seriously shaved a minute off that speech when I delivered it, but I still paused at the moments that I wanted to. I still, sure. I still was able to, to try to bring attention to the points that I wanted to bring attention to. So, um, you know, so I think it just goes to show you, you know, you're always, you're always trying to improve. I mean, it's, it's just that same continuous improvement mindset, whether you're talking, you know, uh, operations or whether you're just talking speaking, because I've been on Toastmasters now a year and, you know, going into this next year, I definitely feel like I've improved, but at the same time, 
I know that I've got a ways to go and I know that there are certain things that I still want to work on. Right. TEDx and all the TED Talks, they have that magic, uh, what is it, 18 minutes? Yep, 18 minutes. So, you know, and you mentioned you have to, you had to leave some things on the on the cutting room floor. So talk about a little bit about that, because at that point, you really are talking about getting, you know, killing your darlings in a way, things that you really <laughs> wanted to say that you just couldn't. So what was that like going through? How did you decide what stayed and what didn't? You know, I think the the biggest deciding factor was I would go through the speech. You know, first I wrote it and then I read it. And I was like, oh, look, this is perfect, 18 minutes. And then I'd start practicing it. And it was like 22 minutes, 23 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you're, okay, so when I start to look at what I can pull out, um, you know, first I'm just looking at, um, first I'm looking at rewording stuff so it's just more succinct, Mm -hmm. you know, so I can get to the point without rambling on about a whole different, you know, a whole bunch of different topics. So a lot of rewording sentences. And then you get through that and you understand too, that most of the time you go up there. Now, TEDx was a little different because I pretty much memorized that speech, but most of my speeches, I get an outline, I memorize the outline, and then I just know the points I'm trying to hit. So it's less concern. There's less concern with sentence structure. Um, but that was my first thing. And then the second was, okay, you know, I'm making certain points about, um, realistic optimism. And as I went through, you know, I had this one section in there that, that was a little bit painful to pull, but it was pulling, you know, I was talking about worst case scenarios. And as you talk about worst case scenarios, um, you know, thinking those through and recognize that maybe recognizing that maybe they aren't that bad. But in the end, when I was looking at the, I was looking at, you know, realistic optimism from the way I was presenting it, I was like, well, this is, this is a little bit, this is a little bit aside from my ultimate point, because I'm talking about a lot, you know, a lot of that was, should I pursue something or should I not Mm -hmm. versus realistic optimism? And the point of that was I might as well, you know, be positive and and think that things are going to go well, you know, obviously be informed and understand what's happening. But if I just go into the situation expecting things are going to go uh, as well as possible, then you know what, if they don't go as well, you know what, that's, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. I'll deal with it then. Mm -hmm. The way I address that in the book was more of, um, you know, I don't want to mourn somebody before they've passed. Right. And I feel like that addresses so many different things because you're trying to say, yeah, I'm not going to blindly say that everything is going to go great, but I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to start saying, oh, it's awful. It's going to go terrible before it happens. So I felt like talking about that piece of addressing worst case scenarios and saying, Hey, maybe this isn't so bad might confuse, get confused in my overall message. So without having, you know, a good paragraph to talk about it, I was like, let me pull that out just because I think that might confuse the overall message I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so that, you know, and, and again, you know, I would love to have had a 22 minute talk that I could have fit that in. But then, you know what? I would have had one other thing that I would have had to pull out and I would have been frustrated about that. So, (laughs) right. So you talked about the TEDx and the getting to TEDx seemed to be an experiment in itself. So, uh, I know you've got a, a YouTube out there and I've got the link in there and I, I, uh, I recommend everybody go take a look both at the TEDx and at the how to get a TEDx. But, uh, can you walk us, talk us through a little bit about what you did to get there? 
Well, you know, I, I first started out thinking we've got a powerful story. I'm going to go online. I'm going to go to the TED website and I'm going to nominate myself. And they're going to be so happy that they hear this powerful story. And I wrote a book. I'm just going to go up there and talk. I've seen other talks and I, you know, our, our story is just as powerful as theirs. And I went and I nominated myself and nothing, mm. you know, it was just radio silence. So I went back and I nominated myself again and again and, you know, and, and, and I even mentioned in a talk at one point, my mom nominated me and, uh, you know, and, and that was the point where I was starting to recognize, like, you know, I don't think they're really, you know, I, th I don't think like that was the one voice that they were like, I like this Ray guy, but I haven't heard from his mom yet. What does she think? You know? So I recognize. Their servers must have been broken. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, and, and I recognize that, you know, that, that wasn't the, that wasn't the voice they were looking for. So you know, it was going to be another path. And I figured TEDx was going to be the right path because there's so many of them and you can find one more locally. And then I started searching around and, uh, you know, after all the calls and reaching out, I came to find out that they, they're booking maybe four to five months in advance, maybe some of them a little bit more. So I focused on the ones in that time frame, the ones in, you know, a reasonable driving distance. Mm -hmm. And I just, and honestly, I stalked them all on LinkedIn and I tried to send them uh, connection requests with a message. And, you know, the few that got back to me, um, were able to communicate a little bit of, you know, what was going on with their event. And then I had one opportunity where I got there just in time before they, uh, released their call for speakers, did the application, which was followed by a phone interview. And then that was followed by a, um, just an evaluation period. And, uh, then they came back and, and they accepted me for that speech or, or for that event. And, you know, that was, that was really exciting for me because, you know, obviously, you know, you watch a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, you know, professionals nowadays watch a lot of Ted talks right? and I'd watched a few, but when we were up in Pittsburgh post transplant, I watched a million of these things. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I was, um, very much by this point, you know, just excited to get up on a Ted stage and, and share that story. And, and, and one other thing that they did ask me to do with part of the initial, uh, evaluation was to record a one minute YouTube video summarizing the point I was going to make. So okay. I, I did that as well. And they were able to, uh, take a look at that, see what my speaking style was like, see if they were interested in, you know, pursuing me for that phone interview. And ultimately, um, that was what, what ended up, uh, getting me in was the final phone interview. So what would you say they were really looking at? Um, I mean, was it, uh, the compellingness of the story? Was it how polished you were or, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of that, but, um, uh, a little bit of all of that, but what would you say? I really nailed it. I, I think it was the passion being excited about speaking. Like okay. I was excited about going up in front of a Ted audience and sharing our story. You know, it's like, I don't think they're looking for a bunch of people with bucket list items that they're just trying to check it off. They want somebody that goes up there and really is excited about, you know, sharing this message. And they were, I think less, they didn't seem overly, um, not interested in my message or interested in our story, but they were focusing their questions around, well, what's, what's your idea? You know, what's the idea you have worth sharing? It wasn't just, you know, oh, just go up there and tell your story. Right. You know, it's, it, it was, you've got an idea worth sharing, you know, what is it? And why is it applicable to our event? And um, there was, a, there, this event was about innovation. I, unfortunately, I didn't know that that was the topic before our phone interview because I was looking uh. for it and I couldn't, I couldn't find the topic. 
And then, you know, then during the phone interview, I found out it was innovation and I was like, okay, well, um, you know, in my speech, I talk a lot about short term goals and I, I referenced something that, that Henry Ford once said. And I was like, well, you know, um, <laughs> short term goals is often thought about in the work setting, but it's also applicable in the hospital setting. And, you know, so I talked a little bit about that. You know, I still felt it was a little bit of a stretch for right. the specific theme. But at the same time, you know, I felt like I had a message that I wanted to share. And if they were willing to include me. I'd be willing to uh, uh, to give that speech there and and say it was innovative. <laughs> so one of the things they don't do is uh, when you're watching the TED is the TEDs or the TEDxes is uh, what happens afterwards. What, what's the interaction with the audience? So what happened afterwards with your speech? Well, the, the during the speech itself or after the speech itself, it was you know it was pretty quiet. Um, you know, I mean, obviously people clapped. I hope and. You go back up and basically you have a green room where all of the speakers stay. I was mm -hmm. the first speaker of the night. So okay. I went out first, you know, I spoke and then I went back up to the green room and I knew we had, you know, we had other, we had really interesting speakers up there, you know, talking about everything from being, you know, getting young people involved with politics to, you know, trying to start new conversations by making people uncomfortable. And there were all these different interesting talks and, you know, my biggest message, I, I went back up there and I was like, oh, you know, this great crowd. Everybody's there. Everybody's out there supporting you. It's kind of a smaller venue because it was uh, the first event. So they're only allowed to have about 100 people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Which so is a really, huge venue, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sure felt that way at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, so my so so all the interaction through all the speeches and through everything during the event was us uh, speakers back in the green room, talking to each other, trying to kind of reassure each other that, yeah, you know what? The audience is there. They're behind you, you know, the, you know, go down and, you know, just, you know, they're rooting for you to do well, just know mm -hmm. that and have the confidence that they don't know exactly what you plan to say. So if it comes out a little bit wrong, they're not going to notice. Mm -hmm. So just go down there and say what you want to say, say, try to get your ultimate point across. So that was, and then, and then afterwards, you know, we had a chance to go down and, and talk with folks. And again, it was a great, you know, somebody approached me and said that, that, um, that his father was suffering with some illness and, and, um, you know, and, and he appreciated my speech and, you know, that sort of thing really makes the preparation worth it. And, you know, I chatted with him for a bit and it was really, it really did make me feel like, wow, you know, these, these speeches are, you know, it's important to share your story but at the same time, you know, everybody hears it through their own through their own lens and their own perspective. And some people are taking things away from it that you don't even recognize. Right. So you talked about all the preparation and uh, you talked about to Toastmasters and this really is uh, honing your craft and upping your game. What would you say you had to worry or work on specifically? Uh, what was your bad habit? You know, I think one of them was speaking too fast. And may, being able to be aware of the pauses. But that's something as you practice a speech a bunch of times, you know, you can work on it for, um, you know, and be more aware of it. The other thing for me is hand gestures. Uh, you know, I'm half Italian and I talk with my hands a lot. And it is something that, you know, I I struggle with when I'm at a te uh, I'm sorry, at a um, Toastmasters meeting. Because if I do a presentation, my hands are moving left and right. And sometimes I get comments back like it was kind of distracting. Your hands were like all over the place. But it's, you know, it's just how I naturally go. So when I was practicing for the TED, uh, TEDx speech, I was very specific in what 
hand gestures. We're going to move here and here. You know, I'm going to move this hand wide and this hand high and low. And I'm, I'm going to do all this stuff. Then we got there for the night before the event and it was a, a practice session. And then they handed me a microphone. Oh, and I was, I was like unprepared. So (laughs) I, I, I'm trying to say something and I'm trying to say, you know, you know, I'm I'm trying to walk my hands down a road, but one of them's holding a microphone Mm -hmm. and it was just, it was distracting for me. It was horrible. I woke up the, I woke up the next morning, I contacted the organizers. I said, okay, uh, you know, and I've spoken with some of the other speakers. I'm like, I spoke with the other speakers. We'd really prefer to get the, to get the, the, the piece that goes over your ear. I researched yeah. a couple of different locations. I found that this place rents a pro- professional equipment. I haven't gotten a quote from them yet, but I'm willing to pay for the cost. If we can get there, I can drive over today and pick it up. I sent, I, you know, it was just, it was just my kind of way of like thinking, oh, I've got this. I'll just solve the problem. And they got back to me and they're like, no, it's too late. No, we can't, we can't do that. Sorry, sir. This is a union job. <laughs> yeah, essentially, essentially. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right, let's, let's, let's just prepare for that then. So I, I, um, I grabbed my wife's, uh, pink lint roller out of our bag and I practiced in our hotel window <laughs> with her pink lint roller. And we were on the first floor, yeah, so a little bit higher than the sidewalk, but I was petrified that somebody was going to look up and watch me talking into her pink lint roller in the window of our hotel room and i was just not gonna it was just gonna be embarrassing and i'm like i'm never gonna see them again but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like it i'm it's not gonna be a good feeling but uh but fortunately nobody looked up and i was able to change around some some of my hand gestures so i could feel a little more confident and you know so then when i went out on stage i knew what what time to switch hands for my mic and i was ready you know it was it was in, in the end it was really a minor thing but when they throw something at you last minute, it sure mm. didn't feel that way. Yeah, and I'd say there's probably always in in every venue I've been in, uh, there's always something last minute. For instance, I was doing a talk, and about a half hour before the talk, my uh, my zipper broke on my pants. Oh so no! It <laughs> came out. I I I tried to safety pin this thing together. Nothing worked. So I'm like, all right, do I just skip? Do I just say I had an emergency? I had to leave. <laughs> Ultimately, I just said, you know what? I'm going to soldier up. I came out. I untucked my shirt. I looked all disheveled. And I just <laughs> I just said, hey, I know I look awful, but I wanted to continue with this talk. Just so you know, I'm going to try not to move around so much. And I won't give you more than you more than you paid for. Um, <laughs> um, uh, just know I had a wardrobe malfunction, and I'm going to try to get through this. So, you know, you just you, you own it. You got to figure out what to do and, and, and uh, carry on. So... I don't think I, I was the most polished presenter that day, but uh, you know, I, I, at least I I got the gumption to just stick it out. That's for sure. That you know, <laughs> and, and it's and it, it is tough enough to go up on stage, and it is even tougher if you're worried about about something like a zipper or something else. It's it's you know, it it really is, and it's distracting for you as well because you're yeah. trying. To, you know, one of the things too that we talked about in Toastmasters is trying to use that energy, that nervous energy mm. to put a more energetic presentation together because you recognize that you're nervous up there. But like, if you can use that energy instead of just fidgeting to make some big gestures or to use it for your, uh, your vocal variety or have some inflection or, or say something a little bit louder, all of those can make it more interesting. And you've got so much energy cause you're standing in front of all these people you know, but at the same time, I think when you've got a, a distraction like what you were dealing with, mm. it's it is it makes it that much harder to focus 
on the words that you're saying. And it's more just like, okay, I'm, you know, you're, you're, you're extremely aware of your body position or whatever it happens to be at the time. Mm. So more about, um, Toastmasters. Uh, I actually do keep metrics on my podcast where when I go through the editing, I count how many times I've said, um, uh, errs, <laughs> uh, and I, I actually keep a, process run chart of that and luckily it's going down but i'm still at roughly three three per minute which is a lot that's like every 20 seconds i say um or you know or something like that what what did you have as a favorite word or what do they call these filler words and uh what did you do to try to conquer that yeah i am definitely an uh guy okay i'll say uh as if it's a word for me I still do it a fair amount when I'm doing a speech. I'm more aware of it. But for me, the biggest thing is to pause. If I can remember to pause a little bit more, I don't say uh, as much. If I'm trying to really talk fast and I, um, you know, it's just that I say it as a word just to keep the rhythm of my words coming out the same. Right. So, you know, I think the, the biggest thing for me is just making sure that I'm, I'm, I can pause. I allow myself to talk fast because I know I'm a fast talker in general. But if at the end of that sentence, I don't quite have the next sentence ready yet, it's okay just to stop speaking. Right. And I'm, I'm telling myself that all the time because I know I do that. And I see myself do that. I hear it when I'm up there and I'm saying, making a point. I hear myself saying it and it just hurts as it's coming out. And it feels like there's nothing you can do. But those are the points where I really just concentrate, just slow myself down, just think about your sentence before you say it, and it's okay to pause. And I think there's probably some science behind that as well, and the the mental processing of your listener is probably much slower than the verbal processing of whatever you're saying. So taking a pause might actually be a good thing rather than keeping that filler word. Oh, I absolutely believe that. I definitely do. And I... You know, I like to make a lot of jokes and, you know, I, I'm always joking around with friends and that sort of thing. But sometimes when you practice a speech so many times and you get this speech down, you might throw a joke in the middle, but they're still trying to comprehend your entire speech. And just last week, one of the feedback uh, gems that I got was pause after you say a joke. Give hmm. people time to laugh. Right. And I know that, and I could see it as it was happening, even in my speech. I say it, but again, my intuition, my feeling is just keep talking. So, yeah, that, there's always that constant battle. And at least for a prepared speech, you can be, you can prepare for that a little bit more. You can think about it. Sometimes with uh, more impromptu speaking and that sort of thing, it's a little bit tougher. Mm hmm. So you've practiced your TEDx talk a number of times, both public and private, and sometimes with a lint roller. Um, <laughs> are you sick of it yet? You know, I'm not sick of it yet. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I practiced it so many times because I was trying to get it just right. And I was trying to remember everything. So when you're practicing it, it's that intentful practice. You're focusing on getting through the entire speech, saying all of these words exactly right, having the exact right pause and not searching for a word once. Right. So you're kind of working on something. Afterwards, mm -hmm. 
you're just kind of listening to it. Now, the number of times I've listened to the TEDx talk, I think it's twice. You know, it what? came out it came out on video. It came out on video um, at the end of February on YouTube. I listened to it once and I was like, okay, the pace was good, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm just kind of watching my body language or whatever. And then I listened to it again a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I, I think for me, I know the speech so much. I know what I did and I know what it was from my perspective. But after I get it done and get it practiced and get it out there, I didn't, I, you know, I'm not one of those people that were like, oh, it's so hard to watch myself. Like, it's fine, but there's, there's no result that I'm looking for. I'm not improving anything by watching it. You know, mm -hmm. by practicing it more, I can improve it. Now it's already done, you know? So it's kind of like, well, it's done. So I, you know, and I think that's, I think that's a similar like mentality. My book, I published my book. I read it hundreds of times before it got published. Right. After, after it got published, I think maybe once. And I'm, I'm kind of amazed you actually did. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and honestly, I have conversations with people and sometimes I forget what I left in there and what I pulled mm. out of there because, you know, obviously the same way with a book, you have, you have parts that you want to, you know, refine and things that you pull out. And it's like, did I say that? I was talking to uh, somebody at a, a CF uh, volunteer leadership conference um, a couple of weeks back and I'm telling them, oh, you know, after Rebecca's uh, transplant, she had this stomach surgery and it had, you know, uh, complications. And he's like, yeah, no, I read it in your book. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot. Like, last, that was one of the last things I changed. I added that right to the end. Okay. Yeah. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you didn't really watch your TEDx too much. So you didn't, you didn't dissect it and analyze it the way I, I thought you might have. So... <laughs> Is there anything that you already knew right off the bat that you would have, uh, aside from the microphone, uh, within your power that you would have done differently with uh, how you executed? You know, I think I, I would have started it a little bit slower and maybe lengthened a few of the pauses. And I knew that as I was going through it. You know, mm -hmm. like at the very beginning of the speech, I knew that I went a little bit faster than I typically had. But I think for me, I had been through the speech. I had recorded myself. Uh, I had presented it to my Toastmasters group, and I had delivered that speech hundreds of times to our cats. It was an all-day, everyday thing at one point. You know, I would go to different rooms of the house. I would present it up in the uh, up in my gym, down in my basement, in my living room, because I didn't want to be distracted by what I was looking at, what was in front of me. I would present it to the mirror and then present it just to a wall. So for me, that was, you know, that was the piece where as soon as I was delivering that speech— I knew every sentence, you know, where I wanted some of these words to fall and the structure of the sentence. And if I messed it up, I knew I, how I would correct myself. But at the same time, I, as I was going through it up on stage, I was like, yep, yeah, no, I hit that point. Yep, yeah, no, I didn't have to correct that. And I knew that it just landed. So I, you know, and for me, there was, you know, there was so much more value in going through it beforehand than going through it after, afterwards. That like once I was done, I was like, I know everywhere where I messed up. In either case, there's nothing I can do about it now, you know, right. versus, you know, versus beforehand. So that sounds like an incredible amount of drive, really. You're talking, talking hundreds and essentially making a full-time job out of a, uh, a successful 18-minute speech. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, I, I think you, you recognize that you've got an audience that you wouldn't otherwise have, and it's exciting to to put that story together for this audience. 
And, you know, you just you don't want to mess up that opportunity. You don't want to get up there and and stumble through your words or choke or anything like that. So, you know, for me, I saw it as a as a, as a huge opportunity. But uh, but yeah, then then I think it's really interesting to hear how people you know, what people take took away from that story after, you know, after it's presented and after you talk. Mm-hmm. So what is next for you? Well, for me, you know, the, I think the biggest thing is this hospital comfort kit. You know, that's one thing that I'm excited about. We've been looking at different products and different ideas. And, you know, once once I decided, hey, you know, you know, they've got flowers that you could send to somebody that's sick, candy that you could send to somebody that's sick. And when we were on the receiving end of it, you appreciate so much the people that sent it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you recognize that it's not helpful. It's not, it's not something that you can use. Right. And, you know, at the same time, when I start to put, started to put this thing together, I was like, well, what, what do I need? Well, when we were in the hospital, Rebecca was, she was always on a different schedule than, than the, uh, the staff that was bringing her food, right. Mm-hmm. The cafeteria services. So she would always have room temperature milk. So we had a cooler that as soon as that food arrived, I would take it, drop it in the cooler with some ice and then when she was ready to eat, her milk would be cold. Wow. Okay. And, and she didn't like hospital food, you know, understandably so. So I would bring boar's head cold cuts from home. I would make yogurt. Um, I, I would get this high fat yogurt that she liked and mix in with fresh fruit and, mm-hmm. and coconut oil. And all of that was great to have in a cooler. So the first thing I was like, we need a cooler. You know, we got a water bottle. You know, the Bluetooth speaker to me was one of the coolest things to put in there because it's the the mood in the room is really important when you're stuck mm-hmm. in a tough situation to be able to just turn around and put on some some Grace Potter, some Nora Jones and just just relax in that hospital room and just not really focus on the current situation. Sometimes that's all you need, you know, so I found that was helpful. The back scratcher, we put a. Uh, dark chocolate. Like I wrote up a, a hospital survival guide. Uh, I got a chapstick that won't roll off the uh, the hospital bed because it's in a square container. Oh. And body wipes because you don't always get a a sponge bath or a shower with a frequency that maybe you'd like to. Mm-hmm. And putting all that together to me was was something where we could do this. The people that buy it for a loved one that's in the hospital, they'll be getting something that's really cool. At the same time, we can take a portion of the profits donated to the CF Foundation, to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, and we can take some of these and we can just donate it directly. If you say, oh, the Children's Hospital has, you know, X number of people on the ward, you know, you can go, we could go and donate these directly. So that's really the plan, you know, Mm -hmm. just to be able to use this as a way to basically help people that are stuck in that situation, you know, some that have loved ones that are, you know, willing to buy these packages for them. But, you know, also those that, you know, that, you know, we saw so many people that didn't have loved ones that were there with them or that couldn't spend the amount of time that I could spend. And it's nice just to be like, okay, I'm going to plug my little uh, speaker in or I'm going to connect to my Bluetooth speaker and I'm just going to listen to a little bit of music, you know, and I think there's, there's a lot of value to that. I've got links to where people can find that when it's available. Um, other than that, uh, what is the best way for somebody to contact you? The best way is through my website at cfcornerman.com. I've got a contact me section. I've also got an email address if they wanted to email me at raypool 
at cfcornerman.com. But any message they send me on the website would go directly to me. So that's that's the best way to contact me. I've also got links for my Facebook page, my Instagram, and Twitter accounts there. So people can connect with me over whichever way they prefer. Okay. Is there anything else uh, I haven't really asked you about that you'd like to make sure you have? Uh, nothing in particular. Nothing, uh, nothing comes to mind. We really appreciate your time. I've, we've taken, uh, I mean, we're really, with all the technical issues, we're, we're, we're heading on two hours here. So, uh, <laughs> you've donated quite a bit of your time and I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciated, uh, chatting with you. I always enjoy, uh, our discussions and, uh, I thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ray. All right. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to episode 200 of the E-Success Methods Podcast. Stay tuned for episode 201 when we speak with repeat guest Joanna Ficketeer on her work with the Mayo Clinic to reduce patient readmission rates. Don't forget to click like or dislike for this episode in the show notes. Tap click done. If you have a question, comment, or advice, leave a note in the comments section or contact us directly. Feel free to email me, Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at E-Success-Methods.com or on our website. We reply to all messages. If you heard something you like, then share us with a friend or leave a review. Didn't like what you heard? Join our LinkedIn group and tell us why. Don't forget, you can find notes and graphics for all shows and more at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. If you're not climbing up, you're falling down. <laughs>